Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Cam, infiltrating the podcast this week, posing as a uh, studio executive, we have Jules from the Riddle Me That true crime podcast hello jules hey guys i'm happy to be here um well uh, you know you're actually the first true crime podcaster we've ever had on the show well that's exciting so no pressure but you're representing a whole brand here no pressure (laughs) you get to set the tone for all who will follow you you are the pioneer Okay, I'll try to do everybody proud in the true crime world then. All, all eyes are on you. <laughs> but um, before we talk about your show, like, just tell us a little bit about, about yourself and how you got into podcasting. Okay, so I've always been interested in true crime, and I got really into podcasts maybe, I don't know, three years ago, four years ago. I started listening to Serial, and then I listened to The Trail Went Cold, My Favorite Murder, Generation Y, all of those shows, and I got really, really hooked. And in May, I finished my PhD. I did it in transpersonal counseling, and I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I wasn't kind of like we live in Malaysia, so I didn't really know, am I going to get a job? What am I going to do? But I was in a unique position where I could kind of devote all of my time to something that's always interested me and that I felt really passionate about. And almost felt like I would regret it if I didn't give it a try. And that was kind of starting a true crime podcast. And it's definitely been a journey. Okay. Um, so if, I mean, for me, I, I always say with, with true crime, I'm always a bit, um, I always have trouble listening to it because it's always, the stories are quite hard hitting and, you know, the real life stories and very harrowing at times. Do you have trouble dealing with these stories and trying to present them in the, in sort of positive ways and getting the information out? How do you deal with all of that? Yeah, it can be quite difficult. I think you need to really do certain cases when you intuitively feel like it's a good idea. For me, for me, it's particularly difficult when it's cases involving children. Those those cases really stick with me. They resonate with me because you know, oftentimes we know so little about the children and they don't really have a voice, you know, and there aren't as many people to speak for them like there are adults. So yeah, I'm, you know, I recently did the case of, you know, I'm sure you guys might be familiar with Eric Carter Landine from the True Consequences podcast. I did have a long form coverage on his brother, Jacob Landine's story. And there's some movement in the case, which is really great. But stories like that deserve to be told. But as a creator, you have to kind of know the right time for you personally to tell them because it can take an emotional toll when you're kind of diving into this darkness. So I think for me, it's just about making sure that I take a step back and practicing self-care and knowing, kind of knowing to separate those two things at the end of the day. And I do admit, even even I find that really, really challenging, but I do try to just go with my gut with regards to which case to go with next. Well, I have a question for you because um, when it comes to like preparing, say this podcast, Scott and I don't really have that much work. You know, we have to watch the movie, do some research on the background. But when I listen to true crime podcasts, it seems like it would be a lot of daunting work just to put out one episode. I'm curious what the process is for putting together an episode. Okay, so I'll tell you both. So when I first started, it was just, you know, me talking into a microphone. 
I quickly got really, really bored with that because I would much prefer to engage with somebody and discuss and analyze the details because that's very much how my mind works. I prefer to kind of go through the minutia and like nitpick little details and hope that we get kind of closer to an understanding. But when I first initially started, it would kind of be writing out a script that would be for me usually around 10,000 to 12,000 words for one hour. Whereas I often do collaborations now. So, you know, depending on the case, depending on, you know, if I'm the one telling the story, it's usually going to be three parts if it's 10,000 words. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like I just did um, a three part on Amy Fitzpatrick with Shana from You Should Have Ghosted. And I think it was 12,000 words, maybe 14,000, but it ended up being three parts that I released over a week. So yeah, it can be quite a bit of research and quite a bit of work with regards to writing. But now I also have different people come on the show and tell me a story and then we analyze it as we go through. So that doesn't require any research or writing from me. It just requires kind of me knowing the story usually and then being able to contribute or add to that. And then, you know, we really break it down. So I like both. I like both formats. But yeah, there's absolutely is not just, you know, kind of going, okay, I know about this. I'm going to get in front of a mic and start talking. Like, I wish you could do that. Maybe some people can, but I need to be prepared and I need to be scripted to a degree. Otherwise, I, I'm not going to sound intelligent. <laughs> Scott and I don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah, you're in the right place. Don't worry. <laughs> it's, it's interesting you mentioned the uh, Amy Fitzpatrick episodes because that's what I was actually listening to uh, earlier today. Because And it was funny because I've actually spent a lot of time in Malaga. Oh, really? Yeah, because uh, well, I mean, I'm in England, and we tend to take holidays in Spain. And Malaga is kind of the, well, the Costa del Sol part of Spain is generally where a lot of people in Britain go to on holiday. And I've I've been there countless times. So just just hearing that sort of thing happen there is uh, terrifying. Just to think, like I was a young kid walking around Malaga myself. Yeah, it's got to kind of hit home when it's like, oh, like I've been in these mm -hmm. places, you know, I've kind of mixed probably in maybe similar circles, you know, being a kid, being there. And I know all Brits love to go to Spain. Spain's amazing. I can see why they would want to live there. I mean, Ireland, by all accounts, is beautiful, but, you know, it's rainy, right? It's sort of like England. So the idea of going somewhere sunny like that would be and getting to live there would sort of be like, you know, me moving to Malaysia, right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, well, now you've jumped over to a spy movie podcast. We have a couple of spy related questions for you, just just to vet you, basically. <laughs> okay. Um, so the first question off the bat is, what is your favorite spy movie? My favorite spy movie, I think is Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I absolutely oh, love okay. that movie. No one's mentioned that one yet. I'm excited to hear a different answer than, you know, we often get the Casino Royale or what have you, the Mission Impossibles. I'm excited to hear something different. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, all those movies are great, but there was just something so fun about watching Brad's, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, you know, playing Mr. and Mrs. Smith. It was the movie that the two of them fell in love making before they got married and there was so much scandal attached to it because he was still married to jennifer aniston so the backstory behind the movie is also really interesting yeah it definitely was i remember all the drama swirling around that but it was a box office hit it wasn't a movie that um you know faced any uh repercussions uh related to the kind of the scandal surrounding it oh and i do like the born movies like that would be a close second probably oh okay yeah do you have a favorite born film of the group oh, i can't even think offhand which one would be my favorite 
Um, I don't know why the Born Supremacy is coming to my head, but I don't know if that's my favorite or not. It's mine, so it makes sense. Oh, well, that was our favorite. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, do you have any opinion on James Bond, like a favorite Bond or a favorite Bond film? Oh, Daniel Craig, absolutely. Love him as Bond. Is it is it Casino Royale? Are you more of a Skyfall kind of person? I actually like Skyfall better. Okay. I'm looking forward to going back to the Craigs eventually for this podcast. I, I haven't really rewatched them since the cinema releases. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. That Yeah, I'm looking forward to covering them again, but I've seen them many a times now. Do you guys have the 411 on who's going to be the next Bond? Oh yeah, they they filled us in on that. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a spy podcast, maybe. <laughs> we just really suck at actually being spies. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, nothing's known at this point. Uh, they won't even be probably thinking about that until they've actually gotten no time to die into theaters and they're actually considering what to do next. Um, I think the pandemic's kind of thrown a wrench in all that. So m- my guess is it's going to be someone that maybe great in the role but i don't think people are going to be doing like backflips when they announce the name unless it's the guy from bridgerton everybody's like talking about how he might be the next bond yeah i think they've already cast him in the role personally i i i think it's him and i think they've already signed everything but and they would have announced it by now if no time to die had come out at the appropriate time when there was no coronavirus you see i disagree i don't think they would ever hire anyone while daniel craig still has the job because they do not want to overshadow his final gig like, they are going to probably leave about a year before they even talk to anyone, I think. Well, okay. There we are. We disagree on something, but uh, it isn't the first time. Yeah, I think why would he leave Bridgerton? He got a huge offer to come back. Like, they offered him more and more money. What would be great enough to leave this hit show where you're you know, offered a ton of money to come back? You're beloved by so many people. It's a hit Netflix show. What would be good enough to leave? The role of James Bond would be good enough to leave for that. Yeah. Yeah, I guess we'll see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, now, today's movie, now, it's based on real events. And that was one of the things that inspired me to approach you to join us, Jules, because you deal with true crime. And these are true events. And we've only had a couple of films so far that have had some basis in reality. We had Matahari, of course. Cam, is there anything else I'm, I'm forgetting? Uh, Macintosh man had some roots to a real case, but it wasn't like a uh, one-to-one translation. So this is probably the closest we've had to real events to the screen. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Okay. Now we we've uh... oh no, it it actually isn't the Courier, which we covered fairly recently for ah. the Declassified series, was actually um pretty you know that was actually a real life story as well. That's very true. Which which we will again probably recover down the line as well. Yeah. Um. But so I think what we'll do is we'll intro the film and then we have a special assignment for you, Jules, that we're going to spring on you uh, that you have no idea about, obviously, and you've not prepared at all. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Of course, this is all top secret. Um, But Cam, what are we doing this week? We are going to tackle 2012's Argo, the winner of Best Picture for that year, directed by Ben Affleck. Um, I actually have a story about this film, but uh, Jules, did you see this in the cinema or do you remember watching it when it came out around the time? Yeah, I think I saw this in the theater. It was one of those movies that it was like a big deal. You know what I mean? Ben Affleck was directing it and his performance was, you know, the critics were raving about it. And so I remember seeing it and being pretty blown away. It was such an incredible story when you know that it's based on real life events. What about you, Cam? Yeah, I saw this one in theaters as well. It was one that I was kind of tracking a little bit before it uh, was released. 
Um, I, I knew little bits of the story, not in any sort of depth, but I knew that it was kind of based on a very interesting real world event. Um, also, I had really loved Ben Affleck's Gone Baby Gone, and then also really enjoyed The Town. But Gone Baby Gone for me was like the heights of the Ben Affleck directorial career, even to this date. And so I was always looking forward to what he was going to do next. And the buzz for this one was pretty strong. I remember it won top prize at the Toronto Film Fest, uh, Film Festival before release. So definitely there was a lot of eyes on it. So I was kind of counting the days till they opened this one. And I'm pretty sure saw it opening weekend and very much enjoyed it. I remember this film uh, distinctly, which is odd for me because usually I just don't remember them at all. Um, I remember the buzz really penetrating to the point of me taking notice of a film. And I, I wasn't really paying attention to anything other than sort of mainstream blockbusters, which this isn't pitched as one. Uh, this is not a Bond film. So I, I think hmm. I either saw this at the cinema or I ended up renting or buying it on release on home video, DVD, I imagine, at the time. Uh, and I remember really enjoying it. I mean, it was a mainstream hit. Like, it actually did very well, you know, at the box office. So it it kind of maybe began life as something a little smaller, but did it really become a, you know, across-the-board kind of hit? Yeah. So I think what we'll do is we'll do the synopsis to set up the film, and then I think we have Jules' special assignment up next. So, Argo. The movie was fake. The mission was real. As the Iranian revolution reaches a boiling point, a CIA exfiltration specialist concocts a risky plan to free six Americans who have found shelter at the home of the Canadian ambassador. Yeah, perfect. I can't fault that. <laughs> uh, I, luckily, I didn't write it, so that's probably why it's so good. <laughs> but as, as I led in with, this is based on a true story. So... Jules, I'm going to put you on the spot here. As you are a true crime podcaster, I need you to tell the listeners some information about what happened around the time and the real events that sort of inspired this film. Uh, do you feel like you're up to the task? I'm up to the task. Okay, I think we're going to lay down some background music to set the tone, and basically the floor is yours. All right, so basically the Iran hostage crisis was a standoff of epic proportions between two superpowers, the US and Iran, amidst a rapidly shifting political landscape in Iran. So Iran was essentially rejecting the influence of the West and further emphasizing this by literally holding Americans hostage. All of that, which the former Shah had allowed in the country, the Ayatollah was rejecting. And this further underscored the anti-American sentiment that had come to a boiling point with his supporters. The Americans who were held hostage were, as you see in the movie, at the American embassy. But this part kind of always seems strange to me. They weren't captured by the military, but by a group of heavily armed Iranian college students. So these students belonged to the Muslim student followers of the Imam's line. So basically from the beginning, they'd been the ones screaming the battle cry, calling for revolution. And now they'd gotten what they wanted. They were now in a position of power. So they were holding the Americans hostage and that had to be a way of kind of consolidating power and shoring up their position, as well as showing their support for the Ayatollah. This took place at the US embassy in Tehran. So basically these poor unfortunate individuals were held by their captors for a staggering 444 days. So we're talking over a year here. This was from November 4th, 1979 to January 20th, 1981. 
as one can imagine, this was incredibly embarrassing for America. So this was obviously heavily covered in the press at the time, but we need to consider that the 24-hour news cycle may not have been what it is today. This is pre-advent of the internet. The journalist who covered the story described it as kind of an intersection of vendettas and a mutual lack of understanding. This was an obvious clashing of cultures. The infiltration of Western culture and the subsequent rejection of all things American, as it seems clear to many who view this as a source of their problems in Iran. So why the hostages? Well, it was clear that the act of taking the hostages was for no other purpose than to blackmail the Americans. And nothing speaks more to America than holding their citizens hostage, especially when the entire world is watching. It strikes fear in the heart of everyone sitting in front of their TV glued to the events. Iranians, well, those in support of the Ayatollah anyways, saw this taking of hostages by the college students as making a move against the US as they believed that the U.S. had been pervasive in their attempts to quell the brewing revolution. I mean, this much is obvious. The U.S. hadn't been shy about stating their support for the Shah of Iran, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. Obviously, when the revolution happened, he was overthrown in 1979. This made Iran, a place that was formerly safe for Americans, dangerous. So then, the Shah traveled to America after he was overthrown. He wasn't just like living in exile. He had been diagnosed with cancer and was now receiving the appropriate treatments. So it's unclear how accurate the accusations are because we all know history is written by the winners. But he was now out of power and his reputation was being tarnished by the current regime, who is doing all they can to discredit the Shah and his relations with America by kind of making him into a quote-unquote monster. And to be honest, the complexities of the situation are too difficult to capture in the short write-up. If you're interested, please go do your own research because I literally cannot even scratch the surface. My point is, like many leaders, the Shah had a secret police and he was accused of human rights violations. This bold act by the students taking the Americans hostage, well, obviously America didn't look on it too fondly. They cited that this was a violation of not only international law, but it was a clear violation of the Vienna Convention. And we all know that this is a get-out-of-jail-free card for diplomats. So perhaps you're not familiar. But if a diplomat rapes someone, for example, they cannot be charged with that crime. Thank the Vienna Convention. It's obviously not meant to shield them from things like that, but it is an unintended consequence of shielding them from potential persecution. So the Shah doesn't retire in America. He eventually is granted asylum in Egypt. And at this point, he's a very sick man. He's essentially going there to die. And he passes away on July 27, 1980. So Argo basically delves into the six Americans who became fake Canadian movie stars scouting a movie to get them out of the country safely. This was a joint operation between Canada and the CIA, though initially the CIA's role was diminished. This reason was twofold, and that they were successful and wanted to use a strategy again, and secondly, CIA involvement in anything is not typically publicized heavily until many years later. Okay, so back to the hostage crisis. It reached critical mass after a breakdown in diplomatic relations and negotiations. They were essentially at a stalemate. It didn't appear the hostages were getting released. So then President Jimmy Carter sprung into action he wanted to rescue the hostages with a mission titled this very patriotic American name, Operation Eagle Claw. <laughs> Basically, this operation was going to utilize warships that were in waters close to Iran. This operation was unsuccessful. 
There was another tragedy tied to this very unsuccessful operation that left nine individuals dead, one Iranian and eight American servicemen. Apparently, there was an unmitigated air disaster when a helicopter crashed into a transport aircraft. So following this upsetting and embarrassing incident, heads were going to roll. The head that rolled here? Well, that was Cyrus Vance, who was likely forced to resign. I'm assuming it wasn't much of a choice after that incident. Okay, so fast forward a bit, and we have something that many people might remember. The Iran-Iraq war that preceded the Gulf War. Well, most of you listening won't remember it directly, but the abstract idea of war and your parents speaking about it. So this was obviously started when Iraq invaded Iran in September 1980. So this caused Iran to change their harsh position on the U.S., sort of. So they took the diplomatic path, entering into negotiations. So friend to both sides, Algeria took on the role of peacemaker and mediated the peace talks. This led to the great thaw in the chilly relations between America and Iran. Well, I think it was safe to say it wasn't thawed out completely. It still remained kind of frosty. So what happened to Jimmy Carter as a result of his failed rescue attempt? Well, many political scientists cite this hostage crisis and his failed rescue mission as the reason he lost the 1980 bid for presidency. So as far as the hostages go, There was an accord named after the friendly mediator, Algeria. It was the aptly named Algiers Accord. The hostages were freed, seriously, like I kid you not, minutes after Reagan was sworn in. That's some good publicity. He could basically take credit for something he had very little to do with. A perfect scenario for any politician to fall into. In the grand tradition of affluent, powerful white men falling up, it appeared this happened to Reagan in this instance. In Iran, the crisis further strengthened the position of the Ayatollah and economic sanctions followed due to this event. So like I guess you could say the relations were pretty chilly still. They weren't as frozen as before as they had been pre-Algiers Accord. So Iran obviously wasn't happy about the sanctions. So that about covers the background of the hostage crisis that kind of underscores this entire movie. Wow. Well, boom. I'm very impressed. Um, I think gave me a much deeper understanding of the situation than the opening of this movie does. I think the movie does the best it can to simplify it to a way the audience can understand, but obviously there's so much more complexity than what they can get across in a couple minutes of storyboards. And, and I would just say, if, if you ever needed uh, any sort of prompting to go and listen to Riddle Me That podcast, you just heard it. Yeah. Right there, yeah. That was it. I mean, good Lord. Well done, Jules. Congratulations. That was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you, you passed the test. Oh, thank you. You can now rest easy for the rest of the podcast. You can just chat about the film yeah. now. <laughs> Perfect. It's now easy from here. Um, but Cam, I am curious, before we get into talking about the film, mm. how did this get made from the Ben Affleck to the screen side of things? Right. Okay. So um, there was an April 2007 Wired magazine article called The Great Escape covering the details of this uh, event. And it was written by a guy named Joshua Bierman. And um, the company Smokehouse Pictures, which is run by George Clooney and Grant Heslov, purchased the magazine with an option on it to make it into a film. And this would have been out 2007, uh, very shortly after it was published. And um, the idea would be that perhaps George Clooney would direct it. Um, Grant Heslov was also probably looking for a directorial um, project as well. He did The Men Who Stare at Goats a little bit later. Um, But basically, neither one of them had any time for it. 
But what happened was um, one of their development execs, Nina Wolarski, recommended Chris Terrio, who was then a fairly unknown writer. He had written and directed a movie called Heights in 2005 with Elizabeth Banks and Glenn Close. I don't know of this movie. I don't know of anyone who's ever seen it, but I guess <laughs> it somehow caught the eye of the right peop- of the right person because um, Chris Terrio joined it. And uh, he would go on. Like Chris Terrio is a guy who now has been attached to some very large things in the wake of Argo. He had writing credits on Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. Um, he did the Zack Snyder Justice League. Uh, and he also did uh, co-wrote um, Star Wars Episode Nine. So uh, not the most um, auspicious of follow-up projects, but for a first project, uh, this is a pretty darn good one. And so he wrote Argo and he based it uh, off of that magazine article, as well as sections from the book, Master of Disguise, My Secret Life in the CIA, written by Antonio Mendez, who is portrayed on screen by Ben Affleck. Um, He served with the CIA for 25 years from 1965 to 1990. And so... Um, Chris Terrio kind of massaged this into a screenplay, a very complicated story. And uh, we'll talk a little bit later, I think, about maybe the um, differences between real life and, uh, you know, fiction. But his first draft that he wrote, Grant Heslov said it was the best first draft he'd ever read. And unfortunately, neither he nor Clooney had time to make it. So it kind of just sat there. Uh, Warner Brothers had it basically in their possession for a while. Ben Affleck received it in 2011. He was in Atlanta while his then-wife, Jennifer Garner, was filming The Odd Life of Timothy Green, and he burned through it. He said most of the time he reads scripts 20 pages at a time. This one he just flew through and knew he wanted to do it. And so he called George Clooney and Grant Hesloff and said he wanted to maybe tackle this project but shift the tone a little. I think it was a little more comedic in the initial draft. He wanted to make it a little more serious. And so that was kind of where they went from there. Ben Affleck chose this project over um, directing a superhero film. Now, he does not specify what superhero film in the interviews I saw with him. But the way I figure it, Ben Affleck is a Warner Brothers guy. Uh, He has a long relationship with Warner Brothers. They've produced all of his movies that he's directed. So it would seem to me if you look at the time period, Man of Steel seems like the likely candidate. Because I remember there was a big search for a director of Man of Steel. so Well, two things there that I just picked up on. Firstly, I wonder if this script was so good that it was just sitting around Hollywood for two or three years. Mm. It makes you wonder what other good scripts are out there right now. Well, have you ever heard of The Blacklist? Only from you mentioning it, I think, on a previous episode. Right, yeah. Like every year they put out something called The Blacklist, which is the list of the best unproduced screenplays. And... You will see that list every year. They'll cite, you know, 10 examples, for example, of screenplays that are incredibly, you know, effective and well-written and are unproduced. And of that list, I don't know, maybe a couple of them will get made, but a lot of them won't. So it just seems like, well, frankly, unless you are a known property, you're probably not getting made. And sometimes you just need the right combination of factors, a producer to attach themselves, director, money coming in. So that's kind of the case. Okay, well, that makes sense. And the second note I had was, I'd be interested to see what the comedic version of this looks like. I think the the Benny Hill theme playing over the bizarre uh, <laughs> thing, it would be a bit much. But uh, yeah, okay. My guess is it probably wasn't, I don't think it was wildly comedic, but it was probably a little more 
almost like Coen Brothers like or something like that, where it just kind of probably amped up the absurdity of the situation in terms of the Hollywood aspect. So it wasn't like clown cars chasing the plane at the end or anything like that. I doubt it. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> Not writing for me. It's hard to understand Argo as being comedic in the least. Like so many people say this about The Exorcist, that if you played certain music or just shifted a few things, it would be funny. And I get that. I see how it could be kind of, you know, a funny movie if just a few elements or factors were shifted. But Argo just seems like it's such a somber kind of story. How do you really make it comedic? I mean, I'm sure that you could do it successfully. It's just so hard because we have this idea of the movie kind of firmly in our minds already. I think what they would probably do is have um, the, you know, the, the people that they had to rescue well, they've got to learn their covers. I think there'd probably be more, uh, you know, kind of comedy they could work out of that, of them trying to uh, get this cover story going. Uh, you could probably amp up the Hollywood stuff with the producer and, you know, um, uh, John Chambers' role. I think there's elements that you could, if you were to uh, want to approach this from a more comedic angle, there is that opportunity. Oh, Lester and John are actually pretty funny. Like there are some moments of comedy, like John Chambers is a pretty hilarious character and Lester's got that kind of dry humor, but he does say some pretty hilarious things. Totally. Yeah. There are some moments that I actually thinking about do sort of lean on to the absurd that maybe you're right with a sort of Coen brothers approach thinking of like this table mm -hmm. read everyone in, in costumes and such. Yes, I totally forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah, like I think there's a, a line too between being respectful versus, um, you know, um, being just like a farce or something or just a complete ridiculous comedy. I don't think they were looking at it as a ridiculous comedy, just more kind of playing up the absurdity of the situation. Okay. All right. What, what else have we got? Yeah, so the movie was mostly shot in LA. They did one month in Turkey, which stood in for Iran. It had a budget of $45 million, which is pretty low um, for an original film, uh, especially a major studio film. And domestically, it did $136 million, international 96 for a worldwide total of $232 million. This was a hit. That made bank. Yeah. I mean, I, I was saying to you before, Cam, I thought this was his directorial debut, Ben Affleck. Mm. Now, obviously, I know you've mentioned some other films to me, but I, you know, I think this was his first sort of foray into awards or did some of his other ones win Oscars too? Uh, no, um, both Gone Baby Gone and The Town had nominations um, for acting in particular, to the best of my memory. Mm, okay, I sit corrected. Mm -hmm. So this landed at number 36 for the year between American Reunion and Jack Reacher. Both films I saw at the cinema. Unlike this one, I think. Yeah, I saw Jack Reacher, but I didn't see the other one. <laughs> I didn't see American Reunion in theaters either. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Scott, you're alone on that one. <laughs> Just trying to hold on. I've never even heard of it's it. It's the American Pie, the fourth one. Yeah. Oh, okay. No, I definitely didn't see that in theaters, and I haven't watched it, period. <laughs> definitely. Then. What kind of person would go see that in theaters? <laughs> Me. I saw the first couple. <laughs> of course. Uh, the good ones. The good ones, yeah. The good ones, Yeah. So we've talked about the year 2012 in the past, but I'll just kind of burn through it here. Number one was The Avengers. Number two was Skyfall. Number three was The Dark Knight Rises at the Worldwide Box Office. A few other spy movies this year. We had at number 29, The Bourne Legacy. Number 38, Safe House. Number 40, Total Recall. Number 50, This Means War. And number 56, Zero Dark Thirty. A couple other notes. Um, we talked about the Oscars. Argo won Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Editing. And it was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Alan Arkin, 
best original score, best sound mixing, best sound editing. Notably, Ben Affleck didn't get a director nom, which was actually a really big deal at the time because he'd won a lot of the awards leading into the Oscars. I think he'd won the DGA, which is the Directors Guild Award. Um, he'd won the Golden Globe. I think he won the BAFTA for that one. Um, it was uh, kind of a shock, and a lot of the theories just became he was such a shoe in to win that everyone kind of voted to nominate you know, other movies because Ben Affleck was clearly going to win. That's stupid. <laughs> you, did, you did such a good job. You're going to win. So we're not even going to nominate you. Like that doesn't even make sense. That was the best theory they could come up with. Literally people were like, well, I mean, obviously Affleck has it. So why bother nominating him? Because clearly he's going to win. So because my vote doesn't matter, I'm just going to vote for, you know, my friend or another movie that I admired. Does the best picture usually win best director as well? It used to all the time. In recent years, they tended to split it a little more. Hmm. It's like you've got enough by winning Best Picture. That should be a pat on the back. So you're not, I think, didn't, okay, so the last Oscars, didn't Parasite win? And I think the director won as well, didn't he? I could be yeah, wrong. Yeah, he won both. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. he did, yes. But Ang Lee won this year for The Life of Pi, which was very well made. So I'm not going to, you know, argue too much against Ang Lee, but it was kind of a weird situation. I, and I remember when it won Best Picture, George Clooney went up to accept. He was a producer on it, obviously. And Ben Affleck was a producer as well. So Ben Affleck did walk out with an Oscar. Don't, you know, cry for him too much. But um, <laughs> I remember George Clooney just went up, went up to the mic and just said, our director, Ben Affleck. And Ben Affleck basically gave the speech. So there was a happily ever after to this. Ben Affleck has two Oscars at home. So I'm not going to weep for the man. <laughs> I don't feel too bad for Ben Affleck. I think he's doing all right. He's just fine. Mm -hmm. He's just fine. Yeah. And uh, Tony Mendez, who, um, you know, had obviously gone through this experience himself, um, he actually wrote a book called Argo, How the CIA and Hollywood Pulled Off the Most Audacious Rescue in History in 2012, the year this was released. So he gave a much more explicit telling of this story because his biography went over it, but not necessarily fully in depth. So this was the um, version of the story that was much more in depth. And he passed away from Parkinson's in, on January 19th, 2019, at the age of 78. So that sort of wraps up my behind the scenes on Argo. I'm really curious to see what everyone else thinks about this film now. So I think we'll, we'll pivot into that. Jules, I know you, you watched it around the time, but now you've revisited it how many years on. What do you think about Argo? I think it's a fantastic movie. Like I'm one of those people who kind of half pays attention to everything when it's on TV. I'm always doing other things, but it's one of those movies, even though I've seen it once before, I was in, I was entirely gripped by it. You know, you get kind of through the preamble of the beginning, figure out what's going on. Once they set this plan into action, like by the time that basically Tony Mendez goes to see John Chambers or, you know, Ben Affleck goes to see John Goodman about, you know, doing this fake movie, and you realize like, okay, you've got him involved and you've got Lester Siegel involved. And at this point, it starts to get kind of exciting. There starts to build some momentum here. And you start to get really invested in the plight of these six Americans who are at the Canadian ambassador's home. And you start to wonder like, you know, not wonder because you know what's going to happen. But still, you find yourself on the edge of your seat. Or at least I did. Well, that's that's actually really interesting. I mean, did either of you know about this story before you saw the film? Um, in depth, 
No, I didn't know a lot of the details, but because of some of the characters involved, like I know that like they hired Jack Kirby, the um, very famous comic book artist, to work on their storyboards that had kind of popped up across my radar over the years that Jack Kirby had played a role in this famous event. Um, same with John Chambers, who I was familiar with because he'd done the makeup on Planet of the Apes. He was, um, you know, a, kind of a bit of a cult figure, but also a very talented Hollywood guy. So I'd kind of heard of this story popping up over the years before this movie was a reality, but not um, with any sort of, um, you know, I, I didn't really know the full story. Okay. Jules? Yeah, I didn't know the full story either. I kind of knew about it. Like, you know, I, as much as I like true crime, I know a bit about history, but I'm like not a huge history buff and that mm. I know all the dates and all the things associated. So, you know, kind of a high level overview, I might've been able to tell you, but the actual details and the CIA kind of involvement, how involved they were. I mean, I think as we can say, it was a little bit downplayed in the film even, mm. you know, it, it's, it's sort of difficult. It's sort of difficult to actually know how involved they were because of we've got, to, we've got Tony Mendez's book, but until have they as far as you know have they released or declassified anything on this whole operation i was under the impression it had been declassified i I, because i watched a documentary about this on youtube as part of my research and they mentioned it had been declassified by the cia what i did notice too was the cia put out like a twitter um thread saying what was real and what was fake in the movie i saw that yeah. Which is super interesting. Like the CIA is out there like fact checking people like, uh-uh, you got this wrong. I thought that was really funny. <laughs> it's, it's The reason I asked about whether you knew it going into it, because I had no idea about this being a Brit. I, I barely even knew about this whole hostage situation. I, I wasn't even alive at the time, of course. But mm. it's something that I was reading a review from uh, Mark Commode, uh, a, a British uh, film reviewer, film critic. And he was saying he's actually really jealous of people that can go into this film and not know the actual story, right? Or at least some of the background of the hostage situation and that the sort of the happy ending that eventually has. Um, and and that I actually appreciate that because I I didn't know any of this going into it, so I I wasn't even sure if the hostages would make it out. Well, that's kind of fun. I don't know that I knew they were all going to make it out. Um, hmm. I'd also it's very tough for me now to remember a lot of the press swirling around this movie prior to release. I'm just wondering if I would have been reading things at the time that basically told you what happened anyway. Hmm. What did you think of the film, Ken? Going back to it. I really enjoyed watching this a lot last night. It's one that I hadn't watched again since theaters. This is my first rewatch of it. And um, to me, right from the outset, where Ben Affleck is using the 1970s Warner Brothers logo... This is very much evoking a lot of those very smart adult mainstream entertainments you'd get in 1970s. This has a lot of all the president's men kind of energy going for it. You've got overlapping dialogue. It's not dumbed down. It definitely simplifies, I think, the backstory to make you understand essentially what's going on. And it just sucks you in with, I think, very good character performances throughout. They cast notable people in even like one line of dialogue type scenes and it consistently gives it this sort of gravitas it just pulls you through like ben affleck is very very good at crafting just purely entertaining films uh, regardless of the subject matter that just suck you in and just take you on a ride and he's a director that i've 
sort of struggled with and that I don't know that I would say he's a real auteur the way you would say like a Christopher Nolan or a, you know, Tarantino is or Sofia Coppola. But he's kind of that old school craftsman type, more like almost like a Clint Eastwood or, you know, another actor turned director, Robert Redford, where if you give them the material, they can very much craft something incredibly compelling and technically effective. I looked at so many scenes in this, you know, whether and we'll go into it, but like the escape sequences, like the editing, the shooting of these sequences is so tense and Affleck makes it look easy. So for me, just the filmmaking of this movie just pulled me in. The comedy still works. I was surprised how kind of tossed off a lot of the humor is. Um, it I recalled it being a little more broad, a little more, as I said, in the background on this movie, that it was uh, originally a little more comedic. That's what I remembered. I was surprised how kind of tossed off a lot of the quips were. Um, so just in terms of a total package for this, I found it very funny. I found it very tense, suspenseful, and just you get that real sort of um, catharsis when it's all over. And uh, I think it's a really fantastic movie. Yeah. It's really hard to argue with any of those points just to, just to think it, talk about my initial thoughts on the film. I mean, I, I really enjoyed it when I watched it on home release uh, back in, I guess, 2013, it would be. Um, and I think going back into it now, having spent a lot more time with spy films and having recently reviewed the courier as well, mm. which again is one of those sort of, fish out of water a little bit um and also you know just a serious spy story based on real life events and i think what affleck does with the material is fantastic and and from the get-go with that little cartoon intro which i doesn't i don't think outstays it's welcome um it, it it gives you enough information to just about set the scene and then you're straight in there with these like super eight cameras giving it that almost as if it's from the original riots yeah even though i'm pretty sure that was all shot for the film yeah. Um, and it just, the vibe is perfect. And I think it is a perfectly paced film that keeps you on the edge of your seat almost throughout with some laughs along the way. And again, just thoroughly enjoyed it. It's a type of movie they so often say they don't make them like that anymore. Um, and watching it last night, I was kind of reflecting like, yeah, they don't make a lot of movies like this anymore. And it's kind of a bummer that Ben Affleck followed this with the gangster movie Live by Night which was a real box office bomb. And I think kind of scared him off a bit because I would have liked to have seen him continue to really push the boulder uphill for more of these sort of adult oriented entertainments that really do deliver like kind of a blockbuster experience just on a, I think a little more sophisticated level than, well, a lot of what, you know, Marvel's doing or Star Wars is doing as much as I enjoy those movies. It's, I miss movies like this. I, I, I find it hard to sort of make that comparison. I don't know if I could really think of films I miss or things that they're not doing now. I'm sure there's good films out now as well. But I just think like it's really interesting that this film doesn't need all the showiness of some of the other spy films we've tackled in the past. It's such a reserved film. Yeah, it is, yeah. But it keeps you going. Like Even Ben Affleck's acting in this film, we'll touch on him, uh, his acting a bit more later, mm. Yeah, he he's not showy at any time. No, I was surprised actually just how um, like kind of uh, ru uh, rumpled and sort of um, low energy he was. Like, I think you need someone like that to ground this sort of material and you can totally buy it. This guy is someone who they would send in to extract people. But I'd remembered it being a little more of that slightly showier kind of like, oh, this is the type of performance you'd push for an Oscar type of thing. 
I think Ben Affleck's performance is perfect. I think that there is this emotional depth that he conveys, whereas he's not, he doesn't have this outward pouring of emotions. He's almost very stoic throughout, but there's certain scenes that really kind of convey that depth. And one of those scenes that stands out to me is when he sits on those stairs with, um, with Lester and they're both eating the fast food. And he talks about, he asks Lester and he says, you know, do you have any kids? And he says, yeah, I've got, you know, two daughters, but you know, I only talk to them once a year because I'm a crap father. And, and then basically he's like, well, you know, when you're in the business of selling lies and deceiving, you can't wash that off and go home to your wife and kids. And it's almost like Ben Affleck sees what could be the future for him because at that point, you know, he's separated kind of from his wife and he can't really be honest with her and he's not seeing his son. So I thought that was a really pivotal moment. And I thought that kind of underscored this theme of, you know, the cost of deception throughout the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's something you can definitely see written on his face throughout this movie. Like you can see that he's carrying the baggage of what this profession is. Absolutely. I don't think he really ever cracks much of a smile at any point. No, maybe a little bit sort of at the end when he's out, when they're on the plane. But no, I mean, it's very downbeat. And, uh, you know, I was saying up front, like how this movie has, you know, the 70s Warner Brothers logo, and it's evoking a lot of 70s movies. You have someone refer to the movie Network at one point, and it feels like the type of grittier 70s type performance that we just don't really see as much. And it feels like that's what Ben Affleck is very much going for. It actually reminds me a lot of um, another 70s spy film, uh, Three Days of the Condor. Yeah. Just in that realism and that grittiness uh, that it, it, they both strive to get. And obviously, Robert Riffin, that was that was made in the 70s, whereas this was made in the 2010s. So kudos to, to Ben. I mean, one thing I really liked about this film, and, and let me know if you guys enjoyed it too, was the fact that the villains, in air quotes, um, weren't just played as one note. Hmm. You get that intro and as get a little bit of information as to why they're doing what they do in taking the hostages and trying to find the people. Now, obviously, what they want to necessarily do with hostages, I'm not going to get into that too much, but at least they're not played as one-note villains that just want to kill people. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You see certain films where it gets played very much on kind of one side. You only see the one side of it. And one that just pops into my mind is like American Sniper, hmm. where it's very much like us versus them. Whereas this, I think it's multifaceted and you understand that it's a matter of perspective and perception and the reality that those people in Iran are living. You know, they're choosing to do this because of what they feel has been this kind of unjust infiltration by America and them getting... America basically sticking their nose where it didn't belong and kind of trying to stop the revolution. And they didn't think that was their business. And I think you can very easily jump to the fact that America would feel that way if, say, Russia poked their nose in and said, we don't want you to have a rev revolution and, you know, was kind of inserting themselves. So I think it's very justifiable, the feelings of the Iranians here. And I think we can all kind of relate. So I think you make a really great point that it isn't just played as one note. They're not just these evil others, you know? It feels more like the situation is the enemy, not even the people. Like, I, I never really yes. got the sense that, um, you know, the Iranians who were posing a threat to them were villains. It's like, no, no, it's this, the political situation is the problem. And it's just that all these people are caught up in a very hostile environment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I just usually we we kind of get into the cast a little bit later on, but I'm just looking at the IMDb page, and it's something you said earlier, Cam. This is just full of named actors that I know. Yeah, like the the top. My entire browser right now is Ben Affleck down to Titus Welliver, <laughs> and every single person on there I've seen. It's not like most of the films we watch these days. You get ten people in, and it's just nobodies after that. Yeah, I actually last night in preparation for this also watched Ben Affleck's Live By Night because I hadn't seen it because it was kind of poorly reviewed in a box office bomb. And I just wanted to get a sense of Ben Affleck's directorial career post this movie. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting to see that that film as well, which is it's a very messy movie that feels like about a six hour miniseries condensed to two hours. But um you see that Ben Affleck, that's part of his thing, is to take really recognizable actors and put them in even the smallest roles. Um, Live by Night is just also packed with stars. And, you know, here you have, like, character actors like, you know, um, Philip Baker Hall or Michael Parks show up, and they have, like, one scene. And it's just all about getting something out of that performance in the scene. Like, Richard Kind shows up in one scene. And what it does is I think it makes you focus on whatever is happening on screen. Um, Some movies could use this very lazily, but I feel like here, this is a situation where people could get bogged down in the details. But when you have a recognizable actor that people know, when this person starts speaking, it's usually someone who has a real personality. If you look at the casting in this movie, you immediately like lock in on what they're saying and it actually carries you through the movie. Like I think it really adds to the momentum. Well, you just look at say like uh, Chris Messina. Mm. And I know him from uh, Aaron Sorkin's The Newsroom, which I'm a huge fan of. And he's great in that. But he's he does a few lines in this film talking about how they shut down the L.A. office. And, oh, it's it, they're not picking up and they've shut down the L.A. office. But because it's Chris Messina, you give a damn he's saying it? It's such a, such a great choice. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Like, I think it's a very effective tool. A lot of um, films will do this badly and will get criticized for it, for just kind of plugging up their cast with people who are doing nothing. But I think here, everyone has a moment. Like, it feels like even if they only have one scene, you know, there's the famous saying, there's uh, no small parts, only small actors. And it feels like Ben Affleck has very much taken that to heart in that it may be one scene, but just by giving someone who's really good this little spot, the whole movie is going to light up because of it in this moment. Richard Kind's role really stands out to me as far as like they all do with like these kind of little cameo roles. Like when he's trying to pay for the script Argo, when you've got Lester and Tony going (laughs) to pay for it and they're going and talking to Max Klein, you see him in this, you know, hilarious kind of role where this is where it's a little bit funny, right? You see this like BS of Hollywood because Lester goes in there really knowing nothing saying, okay, you're not getting, he basically turns him down for the 15 grand and he's like well i'm expecting this deal or whatever and he's like you know no you're not this is all falling apart because of whatever cannibal actors wanting to unionize or something robert redford told me and he bs's his way to saying you take 10 or nothing and he eventually accepts it and then after tony's like you know robert redford he's like yeah i took a leak next to him once (laughs) this movie very much understands hollywood insider talk and I think that, I mean, that's obviously a big part of Ben Affleck's life. And it feels like they did not try to water that down at all, but they found the comedic value in it. And I think this movie has a lot of fun with those scenes. And they really are kind of the hook that pulls you in in a lot of ways. It's how did Hollywood get involved in a CIA mission? And they do not file down the Hollywoodism of the Hollywood material. 
No, I think it's one of the best parts of the movie. I think it does feel really genuine. It's strange that you that you say that, Jules, and I, I, I'm guessing you like that stuff too, the Hollywood stuff, Cam? Yeah, big time. See, that's actually one of the things I bumped on. Okay. That whole, that whole, uh, I don't know, it wasn't really the second act, but maybe the end of the first act, where they're trying to get the script and setting up the office and that sort of comedy section almost. Mm-hmm. I just found like, compared to the rest of the film, that was just like a weird blip. It didn't feel like it fit the, fit the tone of the rest of the film. I mean, the thing was, though, like the entire mission, it is it was kind of ridiculous that they did have to go to Hollywood, set all this stuff up, have artists like Jack Kirby making storyboards, hiring John Chambers, who uh, worked for the CIA. Like they would have had to go through this process. Um, it was a little different in real life, but it just feels like you kind of got to put up this smokescreen in a town that is full of, as you know, um, the Lester character says it's all lies. And to me, it's a lot of fun just seeing the contrast between Ben Affleck's no nonsense approach versus what Hollywood does. I think it gives us a break too, from the amazing amount of tension that's been building. You kind of go off on this fun little, you know, thing where you watch all the smoke and mirrors and you watch them, you know, kind of go about trying to build this fake movie. Basically, like you said, in a town that's built on lies. It's not that difficult. And I think it kind of, they've amped up the tension and then they bring it down a little bit for this part. You have a little bit of fun and then they amp it back up again. So I think that the tension near, you know, as you get going again, it's more meaningful because you've just been taken on this fun ride. I don't know. But also I would say that you take out that Hollywood section, this movie doesn't do as well. (laughs) I just think that is so crucial to what people enjoyed about this movie and why it connected so much was, yes, you have this very tense story, but it's this is what makes it feel special to me. You don't get these sort of tense hostage negotiation or hostage uh, rescue movies with a story like this. Like that's what makes it so outlandish and kind of interesting to me is that when you have that table read and you have all these actors in costume like it's ridiculous and that what i is what i find so much more entertaining about the movie so i wouldn't say it, I, I maybe I, I phrase it badly i like that section i just feel like if i'm looking at the, the movie as a whole that was the bit that felt a bit strange that and the the, the child subplot Really? I like the child subplot. I thought it gave him more depth and it kind of it, it fleshed him out more as a character. It, it, Yeah, I mean, I think it was the movie's way in of also explaining the whole sci-fi thing because this is also post-Star Wars. This is the big sci-fi boom in this kid's room. Um, apparently, it was very expensive to get that kid's room together with all the Star Wars toys and Planet of the Apes and Star Trek toys. That was actually quite difficult, Ben Affleck said. But um, I think it's effective for setting it up. It's also very much an invention of Hollywood. Um, the kid's subplot was pretty invented. The, um, Mendez had three kids. Um, the, the inspiration for the mission was not inspired by his son's love of sci-fi. I don't know if they were watching Battle of the Planet of the Apes on TV together, but um, to me, it worked in terms of a character arc for for Ben Affleck because otherwise, like, what are you left with? You're kind of left with this guy who's very downbeat. I think this gives a sort of human connection to him. Yeah, I agree 100%. I, I can't really argue with it. I, I don't think I would really take it out, but I think I was just, I felt like I had to point out that it felt a, a, like a departure from the, the, the sort of heavy tone I thought it was going for. But I could see why it was needed. 
there's a lot of Hollywood invention in this movie, which is kind of almost more fun because of the background of the event itself with Hollywood's participation in the CIA mission. Um, this movie itself also has a lot of a lot of Hollywood invention. So I always say um, because I'll watch a lot of biopics and biopics, I feel like are almost a faulty um, type of movie. They just don't really work to turn someone's life into a two hour film. Uh, and so a lot of the time you watch scenes where you're like, this feels so false. And I think it's often just up to the individual viewer to find which moments kind of jar them. And like, if there was moments here, Scott, like you ain't wrong for pointing them out. It just depends, I think, on what you're willing to go along with. Cause I have definitely watched other films like this, where I've had scenes where I've sat there being like, this is so clearly not real, or I am listening to a composite character say something. This is really not working for me. So. Well, I don't think Elton John did a dance number in the middle of a field when he was younger. Uh, <laughs> he, maybe he did. Well. Maybe. Well. It is Elton John. It is Elton John. I don't think he was wearing those outfits in, in, uh, in counseling sessions either, but uh, what do I know? I just remember when they made the movie Ray, like the whole movie Ray was built around this love story between him and his wife and how his wife got him through all his drug addictions. And it's like, well, he actually had several wives over the course of this period. And it's <laughs> like, oh, okay, Hollywood, come on. <laughs> I, I do have one question, Cam. Um, what do you call these films again? Biopic. One more time? Biopic. I know there's a back and forth. Some people call them bio- biopics. I say biopic. I say biopic. Yeah. I, it, when you said it, it didn't sound right. I'm going to say how I think it should be said. And biopic. Some people do say it that Maybe way. Maybe that's a British thing. Maybe. Maybe. Well, we like did... aluminium. Mm, yeah. Well, we did We did invent this language, so... Uh... <laughs> you did. I'll give you that. Yes. We have something left. Now, Jules, I have a question for you. Now that we're on the pronunciation train, um, how do you say Toronto? Toronto. Yeah, like you say the second T, because Ben Affleck in this movie says they don't say the second T. And I was like... Toronto. Yeah, like, like it just depends. I don't know. Toronto, Toronto, like maybe trying to pronounce it properly, Toronto. Yeah. But if you say Toronto, like it's not really like, oh, people are going to point it out. You said it wrong. I mean, I'm Canadian and I just said it pronouncing the T, probably not a heavy T, Toronto. Yeah. But I said Toronto. Yeah. I say Toronto as well. And when he said that, I was like, huh, well, maybe people from Toronto don't say it that way. I don't know. I, it's, that jumped out to me in the fact that he felt that they would be given away if someone said you know, the second T. <laughs> That's weird. I mean, we're both Canadian. If we pronounce a T, I wouldn't say it was all across Canada. Maybe it's just an East Coast thing. Maybe there wasn't a Canadian consultant on this movie because it seems like a lot of Canada's <laughs> role in this mission was downplayed in the film. So much so that they added yeah. that um, text at the end about how it was like the greatest collaboration between countries or something like that. That was added after criticism started coming in about downplaying how much Canada did in this mission. Did you read the part about um, Ken Taylor talking about his role kind of being diminished in the film? Yeah, yeah. Do you want to maybe talk about that? Like what what was diminished? Well, he just basically, so he was kind of, I think he'd said something like he was diminished to a hapless innkeeper. And I think he basically had been spying for the CIA during this whole thing. And it had a much more active role, Mm -hmm. but it kind of made him look more passive in the movie. So I think because they diminished the whole, you know, role of the Canadians in the movie, you don't really see his full role. And so I can imagine being, but I mean, he still looks like a hero. 
But I guess if you were a more active participant and you were far more in control of the situation, it would be frustrating. Yeah. I mean, he comes across as, I think, um, very, like, strong and measured throughout the situation, which, you know, a lot of people would be very, um, you know, thrown out of sorts about. He seems very in control a lot of the time as much as he can be. So I can appreciate that. But yeah, I think it's a little bit of a bummer for him. I'm sure watching this movie being like, wait a second. (laughs) And um, like they were trying to create um, distractions as they were making the escape. You know, Canadians were out doing things. So yeah, that stuff's not in the movie. But uh, well, maybe if you read um, Mendez's book, there's more there. Yeah, I thought Victor Garber did a really good job in the role. I just love Victor Garber and he's Canadian, so it worked. But I thought he did a good job playing that kind of strong, silent role that he conveyed a great amount of emotional depth with not saying a lot. Well, maybe this is a good point to talk about the plot and maybe some of the differences. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the, I imagine most of you have watched it at this point, listening at home. But the general idea is they're trying to rescue these six people that are uh, trying to escape Iran. They were working in the in the consulate and they're hiding out at the Canadian embassy. Uh, well, no, is, is it is it the embassy or is it the Canadian uh, diplomat's house? Diplomat's house, right? The ambassador's home, right? Yeah, that's the one. That's the one. And then it's about the the plan by Ben Affleck uh, and the CIA to get them out. But in reality, it seems like it was mostly the Canadian government that orchestrated it. Yeah, like uh, Canadian government bought the plane tickets and had everything set up for them to show up and leave. Um, yes, the, Canada played a much larger role. But at the same time, it's one of those things. Uh, it doesn't really bother me because the movie's so gripping. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I didn't bump against it. But then again, I'm not Canadian. so <laughs> I didn't take offense either. I mean, I think initially, like when the article kind of first came out, I think the Canadians were given maybe more credit. I'm not sure. That was sort of how I read it. But then the movie kind of course corrected almost too much. And they pulled back and didn't give the Canadians enough credit. But again, I didn't take offense to it. I mean... I'm sure Ken Taylor, obviously, in reading that, took a little bit of offense because he wasn't portrayed exactly how he was in this situation. And I think we all want to be portrayed accurately, especially with a story that's claiming to be, you know, of historical significance. But personally, as a viewer, I really enjoyed it and it didn't bother me. Maybe you're both just being too Canadian about this. Possibly. (laughs) That's probably. I did like the line where they're saying, like, everyone turned them away except the Canadians. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> of course the canadians let them in oh yeah we turned them away of course <laughs> of course <laughs> Stuff- yeah <laughs> stuffy brits were like no no never <laughs> you got any crumpets no you're not coming in mate <laughs> one section that gets a lot of criticism is the finale to this where you have the complications at the airport um and then everything on the runway with them being chased by police cars and what have you um none of that stuff happened but to me Again, I don't care. Like Ben Affleck has his like finger so on the pulse of this movie. The suspense going on in these sequences is so strong and pulls me so in that I, I really does I don't care. <laughs> like I think it makes for an incredibly effective movie. And it, it's the sort of thing that I can completely look past just because I'm so enraptured by what the story is here and what Ben Affleck wants to do with this film. He's an incredibly effective filmmaker at sequences i was actually i was saying i was watching live by night and like not a great movie but he has you know gun battles in that movie that are just riveting i think ben affleck is far better at suspense than we give him credit for 
And everything to do with this finale, I think, is really top notch. It's necessary too, right? Like, isn't it, don't you think it's necessary? Like I was telling my husband when we were watching it last night, I'm like, none of this happened. Them putting this together right at the very end. They weren't stopped at the airport. But I as well, I just don't care. Because I think, like you said, Ben Affleck knows exactly how to craft a compelling, you know, finale or ending. Without that, it's just like, wah, wah. They walk through the airport. They get home safely. There's there's no high tension to that. This just kind of builds up that tension. And then you get that release after. And I think that's a really good movie. I think it depends what you're going to, to see this for. Um, if you're going to see Argo and as if it's some sort of docudrama, like something the Discovery Channel had made, mm. then I think you will be disappointed. But this is meant to be a spy thriller, a uh, blockbuster film. Yeah, it's not trying to do the Paul Greengrass docudrama, you know, like a United 93 or something, or a more serious examination, say like Munich or something that Spielberg made. It, it wants to be an entertainment. Like it wants to get people out to the theater to have an enjoyable time at the movies. It's going to give you a little more food for thought. It's going to give you some really strong comedic performances and pull you into, um, you know, maybe a story you wouldn't necessarily have found otherwise. But at the end of the day, he, Ben Affleck does want to entertain you. There's, there's actually something that happened in real life, according to the, the documentary I watched. I actually think would have actually made a funnier joke in that ending. Okay. Do either of you know the the true story of the the second barricade, where they check the the white and the yellow tickets? No. No. Okay, so this is from the um, Discovery Channel documentary. It's on YouTube. If it's incorrect, have a go at them, not me. But apparently, in real life, when they were at the airport and they handed over the the customs slip, I believe they, they had the yellow copy, but they had no white copies. That was a deception they were doing. Okay. Um, and in the film, the guy says, there's no copy here. He brings his supervisor over. They go off into an office and they come back and then he hands over a letter from the tourism board and then they let them through. Uh, there's a little bit of you know, tension as, it, as, it, as they're slowly looking at documents, but eventually they get through. In real life, what happened was they got to the gate. They handed over this, uh, this white slip and they said, oh, there's no corresponding slip. So the guy sat there, he goes into the back by himself and leaves them there standing for about five minutes. He then comes back out with a cup of tea and says, sorry for the wait, I was just making a cup of tea. (laughs) (laughs) I just think that would be like a nice way of like dissolving the drama a little bit for a second. And then they could get to the sort of interrogation bit later on. I I just think that's actually funnier. Yeah. um, I wonder if they wanted to just ratchet up the suspense like they didn't want to give you that relief um because that does seem like a really fun moment that would have worked within the movie but i just wonder if because if you look at that whole finale of the escape it doesn't really give you moments of relief really no that is like nail biting yeah exactly that that is nail biting (laughs) time you're yeah you're you're white knuckling to the chair throughout you get a little bit with the scoot mcnary character stepping in to speak farsi to the um, staff at the airport and uh, to, the, to the to the people there and showing them the storyboards and things like that. But it's still keeping the suspense going. Like it doesn't feel like it's giving you, like I think that tea moment would be a little more comedic. It doesn't give you that. It gives you more character moments. As, as an aside, and this is no offense to Scoot McNary, I think he actually does a fantastic job in the film. I thought that name was a typo. 
Oh, Scoot McNary. It's definitely a unique name. Because that was actually my, obviously, my name is Scott. That was my nickname in high school. Really? Scoot. Yeah. Wow. It would have been funny if you'd said, no, McNary. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, we can edit around this. We can edit around this. <laughs> so what was the origin of Scoot? Is it just like, ha ha, Scoot sounds like Scott. Like, I, what? I don't get, like, I, I don't even get that. Like, I don't, that's not your, I don't understand. But, but I, I don't, don't understand Scoot. It came from uh, a, an ex-girlfriend in school. I think that was like her pet name for me. And then it got to all my other friends and it just became my nickname for the rest of my years in high school. Funnily mm. enough, when I looked at the name, I thought it was a typo too. <laughs> and I don't know why. I think it's just because your mind automatically wants to see Scott rather than Scoot. And so you kind of make those adjustments. Everyone would rather see Scott. I understand that. Uh, so, yeah, please don't call me Scoot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm forever now going to call you Scoot. <laughs> I'm curious, what did you guys think of Alan Arkin? Because he's the one that walked away with the uh, you know Oscar nomination. He, I think, got multiple nominations throughout that season. He very much became the awards um, you know guy to represent this movie in terms of acting. What did you think of Alan Arkin? I loved Alan Arkin. I thought his performance was really solid. I thought that he played that kind of grizzled old, you know, Hollywood guy that's achieved a certain level of success, but I'm sure he's burned a few bridges and has a few ex-wives and he, you know, alludes to this difficult relationship with his daughters. So you see the kind of human cost and toll that you know, of all of that success in a town like Hollywood. I thought he conveyed that really effectively. I was genuinely surprised when you said he had the nomination for supporting actor. Who would you have guessed? Brian Cranston. Oh, interesting. Okay. I think he he's like the hidden weapon of this of this film. He mm. makes all he's those good. office scenes actually mean something. He actually has some emotional like investment in it. He's like shouting. He's got the high energy of the film. Yeah, I think Alan Arkin has the showy role though. He gets the catchphrase. Um Hollywood loves to reward itself too. And he's playing a <laughs> yes. Hollywood producer. I think that was also a foot in the door as well. And they probably recognized a type. Like if you live in that town, you've probably met people like Lester and Lester was uh, more of a composite character. He was not a, um, you know, real person. He was based a little bit on Jack Warner, but you know, we talked when we talked about the courier, Scott, how sometimes composite characters can be a little generic there's nothing generic about Lester. Like he feels like a very specific creation. And I think Alan Arkin really does a, you know, a lot of heavy lifting to bring that to life. Um, I, I don't fault it. I just, I was just genuinely surprised. It just felt like Brian Cranston season around 2012. It, it is weird, but also um, Alan Arkin is an Academy darling. So, you know, he has won Oscars. Um, he, I think honestly, he's just, would always be more of a shoe and because a lot of the Oscars is obviously political and uh, Alan Arkin mm. is just a bigger name in that sort of um, world. Who's voting for the nominees, right? Like, as you said, Hollywood likes to reward itself. So you've got somebody like Alan Arkin, all these people who are voting, I'm sure so many of them can see themselves in Alan Arkin. And I'm sure that kind of, and like you said, he's also a darling and this specific role, I think it makes sense. But I do agree. Brian Cranston really did shine in this role. But I think so did John Goodman. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love John Goodman in this movie. He's lacking that one scene, I think, that probably would have gotten him like a nomination. 
uh, because him is John Chambers. He's fantastic. He just needs like that one, you know, dramatic scene or more like they gave Alan Arkin the catchphrase. That's what I think really put him across the board for nomination city. But John Goodman, you give him, you know, one of those, I think he's walking, you know, maybe away with an award or two. Yeah, he was my favorite in the movie. I just, I love John Goodman, period. There's not much he can do that I don't like. He just seems like a really likable human being. But this role, I thought he was really funny and I thought he was memorable and he brought some levity to the movie. Yeah. The one scene that kind of bugs me with him is the moment where the phone is ringing and they're shooting the movie and they have to like walk through. But I'm like, this, like when we were talking about scenes that can feel a little Hollywoodish, that one to me is the only one that I kind of find a little like eye rolling. Just that, that's that little tension building moment. Well, just the fact it's like the phone, this key moment is all taking place as these guys are walking across a lot and being held up for shooting. It's like this feels to me like a Hollywood moment versus, uh, you know, what's trying to be more of a realistic situation. Yeah, that was a high tension moment for sure that they added that. It did feel slightly disingenuous. I get that. It was like you could tell that was added for dramatic flair to ratchet up the tension. It didn't feel like, oh, this could have happened. I think it's also there to give um, Arkin and Goodman something to do in that finale because otherwise they probably don't contribute as much. I would also throw a little bit of shade at the moment where they're waiting for the tickets at the beginning at the Swiss Air desk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I understand the need for the, the interrogation, but that like, oh, it, oh, it's not turning up, sir. <laughs> oh, oh, and everyone's like, oh, tense, tense. Look around, look around. Could you check one more time? Oh, there it is. Like, that was just, just wasted two no. minutes of the film. Thanks for that, guys. <laughs> and it's just unrealistic. Like, come on now. We're, you know, talking, when is this? Like, probably before we're all even born. This is in, like, what, the 70s the, or 1980 or whatever? Like, this is I was born. a time where they... <laughs> Were you born? I was. But I'm sure you. It's not like you were. It's not like you were 20. You know what I mean? Like this is a time where it's pre-advent of the internet. We don't have turnaround times like that, right? So, how are you actually going to be able to successfully be like, okay, like what are? Do they even have credit cards back then? (laughs) I think so. Yeah. Did they? I mean, I. I was I was born in the 80s, but I mean, I wasn't using a credit card then, so I have no idea. But just thinking like, oh, they could quickly go and confirm this ticket in this like two minutes that it takes for them to then check again. That felt really unrealistic, given the time frame. I was going to make a joke about your age, Cam, but I, I think it's just too uh, too cheap. OK, I've got an answer. <laughs> the The first credit card was introduced in 1950 and American Express uh, was founded in 1958. So... <laughs> There's our answer to the credit card question. I thought that America was only in debt due to credit cards and this didn't happen until like the 70s or 80s. That's probably when they really just started spending a lot. I I wonder if it was something that early on you'd get a credit card, but you didn't use it as much. Like once you get to that, especially the 80s period, the me decade, it's just like spend city. Yeah, I think you're right. Maybe it was just reserved for like a few people at that point. It wasn't so pervasive in that everybody had a credit card and were basically living on credit. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I kind of want to just touch on a couple of of good scenes uh, and and any sort of follow up on that. But I really like the bizarre sequence. Yes. I think that was fantastic and probably my favorite moment of the film. 
I love it too. I've been to Istanbul. I've been there. I've been to the Hagia Sophia where they go as well. And I thought it was, it was really cool. It felt really genuine. Like I wouldn't, you know, I watched it. I'm like, well, this definitely wasn't in Iran. This was definitely in Turkey because we've been here Mm. and yeah, it felt really cool. That's how it feels when you're there. It's so crowded. And I mean, when you're there now, there's a lot more, it's a lot more, you know, tourists there and stuff. So it's not just at that time, they're trying to convey this idea of it being, you know, mostly Iranians, obviously, because Americans can't be there at the time. So it does feel different now. But yeah, I love those scenes. I thought it added so much to the movie. It's the sort of moment that was an invention, but I think is hugely effective because it sets up the psychological stakes of all the participants. We get the discomfort of the six people who have to escape and how uncomfortable they are with this whole cover story. So we actually get to see them go through a scenario, fail it. That actually ramps up the tension for when we get to the finale. So I think, you know, in terms of the invented material, this is really, really strongly written, effective material here. Just a personal story to add. When we were in Marrakesh, my husband made the mistake. One day he went out early in the morning and he took a picture of a man without asking permission. And he had a very similar thing Mm. happen to him that happened to them in this movie, right? I mean, he didn't know. And, you know, he learned pretty quickly that it's something you want to ask for permission. But how angry this man was and you watch kind of these people kind of in the bazaar they start to descend on this group of six and then you successfully watch you know tony mendez ben affleck get them out of there safely but at that moment you're wondering what's going to happen here is something bad going to happen so it's one of those moments of tension and then release and it just kind of sets up the stakes for you know this getaway through the airport because it sets it up that these people aren't good at this at all so you then are watching all of them through the entire finale, waiting to see if someone's going to crack. Yeah. Um, has anyone else got any sort of favorite moments they'd like to touch on? Yeah, I've got a small one where the van driving through the crowd when they are making their mm. escape and it's the mob in the street and how tense this sequence is where they're banging on the van and you just see like several of the the escapees like just shrinking in like fear in this moment. I think it does a really good job. Again, amping up the stakes of this finale. Yeah, I love that scene too. I think it really does. It kind of solidifies like what is at stake here and that it's that whole fish out of water thing. They are in this completely different world than the world that they entered into when the Shah was there. And now they're just so uncomfortable with this place that they used to call home. I had another moment that I kind of uh, laughed at, which is Ben Affleck, there's often a little bit of vanity in his on-screen performances. And I did snicker (laughs) at his shirtless scene where it shows like everyone getting ready and it shows like (laughs) Affleck just like shirt off, just like, okay, here we go. I'm like, oh, this is so pure Ben Affleck. (laughs) It totally was. I That scene came up and I wrote down instantly, Ben Abfleck. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That's so cute. I actually expanded it later on. Uh, It became Ben Abfleck. Uh, (laughs) Oh, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure he'd love that. It was a, uh, his beard uh, Abfleck movie. Yeah, that, that's it. That, that's what Argo will be forever known as now. Beard Abfleck. Like 
Beard ab flag. Yeah, for sure. He was like, I'm going to work out extra hard and eat keto for a week. And I'm not going to like, you know, do drink any alcohol because I've got to show my abs. It felt like that wasn't necessary, but it did feel like that little shade of Ben Affleck vanity that you have to add to one of his movies. Uh, let's be fair. There were a lot of shots of his face in this film. <laughs> a lot. Uh, ben Affleck will often cast himself in these types of roles. And this one maybe is a little iffy just because, um, you know, Tony Mendez was of Mexican descent. So, uh, you know, maybe some question marks there. You wonder what, you know, maybe a different actor would have done there. But uh, Ben Affleck said of this because people, oh, believe me, they asked him about casting himself as the lead in this movie. And he said, honestly, the actor in me read this and knew what a, like a hell of a part it was. So there you have it, I guess. But uh, as we said, though, like he does ground the movie. Like he brings an energy that, I think is vital to why the movie works. It's not a flashy performance. I think it's telling that, you know, there was not a lot of best actor nominations for him for this movie, but it is a crucial role. And I think he, he pulls it off well. Okay, I have a question for both of you. Mm -hmm. Do you think that in 2021, you would be able to cast in such a big, important movie, Tony Mendez as somebody who is not Hispanic? No, I don't think you would do that now. No, I think... Maybe you could, but I don't think you should. I don't think you could. I think you'd get so much blowback. I think like, yeah, you're right. Maybe you could, but I think you'd get a lot of blowback about it. It probably wouldn't be worth it unless you had, you know, such a big name like Ben Affleck and the sign off of the person they're portraying. But even then it's like, is it worth it? Did you see the recent... um controversy it was kind of over holly berry she was considering taking on the role of a trans individual and she got so much blowback on social media and from people for even considering this role that should go to a trans individual rather than you know her as like you know a woman so she basically was like okay i'm going to back off i don't understand the plight of you know trans individuals and what they've gone through they're going to add far more depth to this role they have the right to this role rather than me holly berry the actress i'm going to take a step back and i'm not even going to consider this and i think she took the right approach so i think that a lot of responsibility is being put not only on studios but on the actors as well I mean, we, we've delved into so many of these questionable casting films recently that i'm i'm erring on the side of caution with all things now i think uh, hire the most appropriate person that uh, has lived that life or you know knows exactly what the plight is so i can understand why halle berry stepped away from that i absolutely watching this movie i was trying to think of other actors and i thought like oscar isaac would be someone i could totally see in this role and pulling it off Ah. um i think there are other options i just Again, I think Ben Affleck was pretty set on casting himself as the leader here. Was this sort of the last few years that you could get away with that then? The sort of 2012, 2015 maybe? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Oscar Isaac would have been good. I am just Googled him and I'm like, oh yeah, I remember him. He's good. He would have been really good in the role of Tony Mendez. He's fantastic. Mm -hmm. I, I think he would have been able to have carried the film. And again, I mean, I say about Ben Affleck's performance, it is very grounded and he isn't showy. And I think um, Oscar Isaacs could do the same. Mm -hmm. Okay, it sounds like we've sort of spoken about most of the cast now, but is there any names on that list that you think we've missed that deserve a little bit of mention? Well, we've talked about Scoot McNary, but there's a few others in that group of six I think are quite strong. I thought Tate Donovan, as sort of the leader of the group, Bob Anders, 
was very effective. I've seen Tate Donovan in many things over the years. Love potion number nine. He was on Friends for a little while. Um, I thought he was very good at kind of providing that sort of calm for this group. Um, and I, I thought Clea Duvall was also very strong. I loved Clea Duvall. I thought she was really understated. And I, I just, I love everything that she does. I think Tate was probably my favorite of the six, uh, with Scoot being my least of the six, but that's for personal reasons. <laughs> Scoot. But, but you're right. He really does sort of ground that group. Um, and I, I feel like he is, is he kind of their leader? I, I never know if it was actually official or not, but was he their leader? I think he might have been the boss, but they also acknowledge him, the CIA does, as the likely leader of the group. And I don't know if that's just because of his personality or maturity or what. Yeah. Did you? Did any of you struggle with remembering who was who with the, that group of sticks? Oh, yes. A few of them kind of looked alike. I had a bit of a hard time, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. I also struggled with, because um, there's, a, there's a lady in the group of six and then also... Ben Affleck's wife. Yes, I Taylor noticed Schilling. that. Yeah, I, I I struggled to tell who was who with that, and I'm sorry to both actors, um, but I just yeah, I, I did struggle there. I thought his wife's role was. I thought Taylor Schilling did a good job. I've really only seen her on Orange Is the New Black, and she kind of had that you know one tone performance where she's just sort of like this depressed, kind of worried wife. But I still thought she did a good job. But she did have that kind of the same kind of soft features as Carrie Bichet, or that's her name, yeah, who played mm -hmm. uh, Kathy Stratford. Maybe that was just like the 70s type. I don't know. <laughs> but I, yeah, like I thought they were fine. Um, someone who I was a little disappointed, I, I remembered him doing more was Kyle Chandler, who has like a good scene here or there. But Kyle Chandler is just one of those actors who's so reliable and so usually fantastic that I was a little disappointed he didn't have more to do here. Yeah, I love him on Friday Night Lights. I, I mean, everything he does, he's reliable, he's good, but he's always been an actor I've liked, and he doesn't do a ton here. I do find that Titus Welliver adds something to it because I always love everything that he does as well. I genuinely had to look up who that was, Cal. I'm sorry. <laughs> Kyle Chandler? Oh, that's sad. Yeah. So, sorry, Kyle. Uh, and, and, and sorry, Scoot. Sorry for all the hates as well. Um, okay. I, I, any other mentions, guys? I don't think so. It was just, um, I think Michael Parks played Jack Kirby, which was noteworthy. He has nothing to do. He doesn't really say anything, but I was excited to see Jack Kirby played on screen. That was kind of fun for me. Jack Kirby's a guy that did all the Spider-Man drawings and stuff, right? No, that was Steve Ditko. Jack Kirby did, oh God, he did a lot of the Marvel stuff. He crossed over to DC and did New Gods. I think Jack Kirby was the Fantastic Four artist. Um, he did a lot of the uh, early Marvel stuff. I think he worked on Thor. A lot of, basically, if it was cosmic stuff, Jack Kirby tended to be the guy. I believe he worked on Silver Surfer as well. Okay. Okay. Um, well, I think before we go to the knock list and sort of and wrap it all up, um, any sort of final thoughts and final questions? I have, I have one major question for everyone, but I'll, I'll throw it out to Jules first. Do you have any final thoughts on the film? Uh, just a really great film overall. I mean, there are details that, as we've mentioned, aren't historically accurate. But to me personally, it doesn't bother me because we know it's a Ben Affleck movie. We know it's going to be this suspenseful kind of historical mystery. And there's going to be some details that they take artistic license with. And I think they do it really wonderfully here. So just really solid movie overall. I enjoyed it the first time and I enjoyed it just as much the second time. What about you, Cam? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm just echoing that. I enjoyed it so much. I love the style of it. I think it's just a really fantastic um, suspense story. I also love how it's very much a sort of tribute to Hollywood storytelling, which is probably why it won the Oscar. You have that moment, <laughs> you know, at the end of Scoot McNary laying out the storyboards and showing how, you know, a Hollywood story can relate to anyone in any walk of life. Even these, you know, guards who from Iran who can look at these storyboards and feel the kind of the magic of storytelling. I think Ben Affleck is very much sort of um, paying tribute to that. I think it works within the movie. And I think this story, you know, it's a very specific story. You know, it's Hollywood insider stuff, a very complex political situation in Iran. And it works, I think, for almost anyone who watches it in terms of understanding the story. So, I mean, for me, it is a really fantastic film. I mean, who needs a language when you can go (laughs) everyone understands that. Exactly. (laughs) Well, okay. I'll save my final thoughts for when we get to Noclis in a second, but I did have one question for everyone before we wrap up. Okay. So let's just say us three are part of the six and we're stuck in the the embassy. Okay. Okay. And Tony Mendez has turned up to rescue us. And they've based these jobs on our personalities. What is your TV film crew role? Oh, we're TV? Oh. We're not even good enough to be in the movies? <laughs> we're the TV version? <laughs> oh, no. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll downgrade you if you want. <laughs> like, what, what's your, like, if you're not director, because we've already got the director, we've already got, like, the cinematographer from those six. So apart from the jobs they've already got, what would you be? I'll help you out. I think I, I had a little guess of myself. I think I'd be the accountant. Oh my god! How boring! I think I'm that boring. I'm that boring. <laughs> I would. Ooh, I would not be the accountant. Um. I I don't know. What are the options here? Okay, so the director's already taken. Mm-hmm. So what what are our options here? What are the roles again? Uh, Cam, you're you're good with these sort of things. What's oh the main roles of a film crew? Well, I mean, I was thinking for myself. I think like got to be kind of neurotic so i'm thinking like maybe like script assistant or something like the person continuity i think that would probably be my thing would be continuity oh, i could see that i could see that let's help jules out though so give us some some roles okay so i'm trying to think of what else we had you could be is there a producer um you can never have too many producers so there's no reason you can't have another one yeah um, if i couldn't be a director i'd definitely be a producer are you okay. good at overseeing stuff and sort of like hands in loads of pots and spinning loads of plates yes Yes. You are our producer. I'm the money man and Cam's the neurotic mess in the corner. <laughs> Shaking and crying. <laughs> yeah, Sounds about basically. right, actually, yes. Every week. <laughs> <laughs> right, I think that brings us on beautifully to the knock list. The, Cam, just remind us again what the knock list is and what we're trying to do. Yes, the knocklist is the need to see official classics of the Spy Hearts podcast. Basically, we're looking to create the canon of all-time great spy films. So some of the movies on the list, we've got like Dr. No, we've got North by Northwest, The 39 Steps, Three Days of the Condor mentioned earlier. So movies like that, we're looking basically to compile a list you could give anyone who loves spy films and say, hey, here's the ones that you're not going to have a dud in the bunch. Okay, so... Given that, Jules, you're our guest. Guests always go first. Does Argo make the knock list? Yes or no? Yes, I think so. And why? 
I think that it's an incredibly solid spy film with a lot of historical backstory, but you also have a lot of depth to these characters. So I think it isn't your necessary isn't necessarily your traditional spy film. It isn't like your Casino Royale or you know your Skyfall or something like that. There is so much kind of backstory, and you end up really caring about these characters on a deeper level. So I think that it's a spy film with a little bit of comedy and some heart and some historical accuracy. So I think it's something you should have on anybody's canonical list of spy films. It's hard to argue with that. Cam, what about you? Yeah, it's a big yes for me as well. Um, We're going to talk about so many spy films where it's about someone defecting or, you know, what have you. There's not going to be a lot of movies like Argo. And I think Argo delivers on all the things it's trying to do. It's suspenseful. It has the comedy. It has the insider look at both Hollywood as well as a CIA operation. And it does it all so well and just so entertainingly that it feels like the type of movie I could recommend to just about anyone and they would enjoy. So I I can't think of a reason I wouldn't recommend Argo for the knock list. Okay, so that's two yeses. And as such, my vote is completely pointless. (laughs) But as usual... As usual, here it is anyway. I I mean, two weeks in a row now, we've had really good films. We had Goldfinger last week, and we've got Argo this week. And both times, we were discussing with Calvin, who joined us last week, we kind of wanted to be like edgy and come into it and be like, oh, it's not as cool as I remember. Oh, it's got all these problems. But I'd be damned, this is a good film. And I think I would be remiss if I didn't vote yes on it it's it's a solid spy story and we haven't really spoken about that too much we've spoken about the real life situation but this is a really fascinating spy story that ben affleck and and the writer has sort of expanded on from reality and it really just drags you in and and not kicking and screaming it's a two-hour film that flies by it's well paced and i think it would be missing if it didn't make the knock list so i'm gonna give it a firm yes awesome So there you go, folks. That's a triple yes for Argo. It's officially making the knock list. And as such, the dossier on the film is closed and filed as classified. So before we talk about what we're doing next week, we have a quick message from the team over at Their Terrified and Tipsy podcast. Cam, roll the clip. Rolling. Hi, friends. Hi. Welcome to Their Terrified and Tipsy. My name is Courtney. And I'm Stephanie. Since we have very different feelings about scary movies, we decided to share our emotional struggles with you all. Yeah, so grab a glass of wine, your Mm -hmm. favorite couch blanket, and get comfy and enjoy the ride with us. You can find their Terrified and Tipsy on Instagram and Twitter, plus all the podcast platforms. For links, head over to tipsypod.com. Cheers! There you go, folks. They're terrified and tipsy. And to be fair, I was quite terrified during bits of this film, and I kind of wish I was a bit tipsy too. (laughs) But you can find them on all major podcast apps. Jules, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here. And thank you for that, uh, the homework we gave you at the beginning as well. That was no mean feat. That that, that took some work. So we we thank you for that. You're very welcome, Scoot, Cam. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, no. Um, I was going to give you a moment to talk about your podcast, but I don't think I should now. Um, no, but seriously, Jules, where can people find you? Tell them a little bit more about the podcast and, and just go for it. 
Okay, so I actually have two podcasts, Riddle Me That, True Crime. You can find me on all major podcast platforms, on Twitter at Podcast Riddle. I also have another podcast with uh, Robin Warder from The Trail Went Cold and Dr. Ashley Wellman, who's a criminologist, and it's called The Path Went Chilly, and it's at Path Went on Twitter, and yeah, available on all major podcast platforms. Cool, and we'll put links to those in the show notes as well. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. So, Jules, thanks again for joining us. Cam, what are we doing next week? Well, we are launching another franchise. We are going to the year 2008 and tackling Taken, starring Liam Neeson. Right. Uh, Cam, this is this a spy film? Well, I don't know, Scott. You're the one who chose it, not me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. Well, we'll find out next week. Uh, I did watch this film in the cinema, I think, uh, but I have not watched it since. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but we'll find out next week. For sure. So as we mentioned earlier, Argo made a knock list. And if you want to find out more about the knock list, you can head over to letterbox.com forward slash spyhards, where you can find the complete knock list of films that have made it so far and films that have missed you can of course follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram and we are now a member of quite the thing media podcast network and you can find them on their website quite the thing media.com where you can find us and a great bunch of podcasts as well so check that out um but until next week listeners i go fuck, fuck yourself, yourself.